dear congregation, there are a few things in our society today that bring us more sadness and grief than the state of the Jewish people. We see them in Israel. They've been brought back to their promised land. We can read of their history. We can read of all the things that God has performed on their behalf, all the great acts of deliverance. Throughout the years, we sung of that in Psalm 124. And yet, they, the, 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 large portion, the largest portion of them continue in unbelief. It seems like all of our disappointment with the Jewish people centers and comes to a focus when Jesus stood outside the city and he cried out in anguish, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And as I considered this chapter and what took place in it, my heart too went out for the Jewish people. And so I thought to focus on that this morning. The title of the sermon is just that, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Paul's love and, and passion for the Jewish people is contained in Romans 9 and verse 3, where Paul says something that cannot literally and strictly be true. He says in Romans 9, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So strong did the heart of Paul burn for his countrymen, for the Jewish people, Paul himself, of course, being a Jew. Paul followed a practice in all his preaching, and we've seen that now in the book of Acts, that he would always come first to the Jewish people and preach to them. And it is recorded in the book of Acts that he had some success. There were some people that came to Christ out of the Jewish faith. Of course, quite a number of them on the day of Pentecost, right? They, those were all Jewish people. But even later on in his ministry, a few Jewish people would seem to kind of trickle his way toward the gospel, right? But then inevitably there would be that backlash, right? The rage of the Jewish people against the gospel is such a repeated theme in the book of Acts. And that's what we see also in our chapter this morning. Because we see Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. That is my first point this morning. Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. And you see in this chapter, as we read it, that at first he's received with a considerable degree of anxiety. He's received warmly, they're happy to see him, but they also have a lot of anxiety. Because news and, and rumors about Paul's ministries, Paul's ministry have, have reached Jerusalem. So here's the problem. Here's the problem. The Jewish Christians, okay, now, you always have to keep this in mind, don't you, that there's the Jewish people who are not Christians, right? They're still waiting for the Messiah to come. But there are also a good number of Jewish people who have become Christians but they remain Jews, or I should say they continue the practice of the Jewish religion. They continue the rites and the rituals and the ceremonies of the Jewish religion, but they believe the Messiah has come, and they are Christians. I call them Jewish Christians. And then, of course, we also know there are Gentile Christians. Well, in Jerusalem, of course, you have many Jews, right? But there's also a large population of Jewish Christians, 
Now, these Christians continue to practice the rites and the rituals of the Jewish religion. And amongst them, there are probably a good number of them who believe that they must do so. Now, you know that Paul, in his preaching, has always taught that those Jewish rituals are no longer necessary for Christians. Why? Because they have been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. That when Christ came, the thing to which those rituals point has come, has arrived. We don't need the picture anymore if we have the reality. And so the pictures go away. The Old Testament rituals and ceremonies may be put aside. Paul very much teaches the Jewish Christians that they may continue to practice them. They don't have to lay them aside. But there's no longer any religious value to them anymore. Circumcision is nothing, Paul says. Well, of course, the problem is that many of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem continue to practice the Jewish religion and continue to believe that they must do so. Again, my friends, we must never think that when a person becomes a Christian, you know, at the snap of a finger, they suddenly lose all that they were raised with and all their previous learning and knowledge and practices. Right? We might look at them and say, hey, you, know, you don't need to do that stuff anymore. But that's not how it works with people, right? People move slowly. And God chooses to move slowly. God can move very rapidly, as he did in the life of the Apostle Paul. But God's normal way is a slow process of a renewal of our minds and of our uh, life and practice. So there's the problem. So now these, uh, these elders, including James, come up with this plan. Paul, here's these four men who are going through a purification ritual. They've shaved their heads. Now don't forget that only just recently, uh, Paul had shaved his head because he had uh, made a vow. Do you remember that? That was back in Acts, one of the chapters back there, right there, Paul had gone to the city of Cancria, and he had shaved his head because he was keeping a vow. So that Paul, even Paul, continued to practice some of these Jewish rituals. And now the, uh, the elders say, Paul, just to smooth things over with these Jewish Christians so that, the, the, so that your, your practice of no longer following these Jewish rituals doesn't become an obstacle to their believing in Christ and to their continuing to be believers in Christ, why don't you join these four men? in their purification ritual, so that everybody can see that you still respect these Jewish rituals and that you're not just casting them all aside. Now, to this plan, Paul agrees, as we read in Acts 21. Now, uh, in, in, uh, in verse 25, notice that even these elders of the Jerusalem church remember the council of Jerusalem. Remember, that took place in Acts chapter 15, where Paul and Barnabas explained and defended the idea that the Gentile Christians should not be required to participate in these Jewish rituals. And the decree that they passed is given in verse 25 of Acts 21, this chapter that we read, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, and then they quote that Jerusalem council. So understand that even the Jewish, or the elders of the Jerusalem church are saying, we're not talking about Gentiles now. The Gentiles no longer need to perform these rituals. But the Jewish Christians, and now you see something of a, again, 
Not everybody's on the same page in this chapter, right? Do you sense that? No doubt there may have been even elders in that, Jewish, in that Jerusalem church who still continue to believe that you must be circumcised, that you must practice these Jewish rituals, the food laws, the ceremonies. Now, Paul doesn't believe that anymore. But again, you see Paul's willingness, right, to, to concede some of these points. And that's what he does. Now, the second point is Paul is discovered. It doesn't work, does it? Undoubtedly, some of the Jewish people uh, from the city of Ephesus, and I would think that these were actually Jewish people now, not Jewish Christians, but some of the Jews from Ephesus, discover Paul in the temple, and they raise a huge ruckus, as you can read at the end of, of Acts 21, and Paul's life is only saved because he is taken, uh, he's rescued by these Roman soldiers. And then Paul gives this speech that we read in Acts 22. And this speech is very interesting. Notice that this speech, my friends, is not a sermon, right? This is not, a, this is not Paul trying to expound the gospel, although Paul is... He never gets to it, but no doubt he would have done that if he'd been allowed to finish his speech. But this is a defense, right? This is Paul defending himself. It says that right in chapter 22 and verse 1, right? Brethren brethren and fathers, hear my defense. In in the Greek language, that is the word apologia, right? Apologetics. He's going to make a defense. And it's interesting, some of the points that he makes in this speech, because you'll notice in the first place how how Paul wants to make it clear to his audience that he himself was a Jew and that he was as zealous as any of them for the principles of the Jewish religion. Paul wants to make that very clear to these people that he was as zealous for the Jewish religion as any one of them. And he goes through, and you can see how he talks about this, that he's a Jew, verse 3, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, Brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. And if if you remember, Gamaliel was the greatest scholar of the Jewish religion, right? If you studied the Jewish religion in any Jewish school, you you were great. But if you studied under Gamaliel, you were sitting at the feet of the greatest of all. There was no greater scholar than Gamaliel. And Paul says he was educated strictly, in verse 3, according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So Paul very much wants to identify himself with the audience. He wants to place himself amongst them. I was just as you are today. I am not against you. I'm with you. Now, of course, that's a tough sell, right, for this crowd. That's that's going to be a very difficult argument to make because they know what Paul's now teaching. But Paul labors to show them that his credentials for being a Jew are as solid and even more solid than anyone in the audience before him today. But something happened in his life. And this is is another aim that Paul has in this speech, and you see this, how carefully Paul documents the miracles that took place in his life to bring him to the point of realizing that Jesus was the Messiah. That all begins in verse 6, where he describes this, this blaze of glory that shone down from heaven, knocking him off his horse, and the voice that he heard, I am Jesus the Nazarene. You know, my friends, if I could, if I could put it in a word, that Paul's aim in, in this speech 
is, is to say something like this. That a real Jew, if you were a real Jew today, you would be where I am. I'm, and again, I'm saying Paul now. I am the one, says Paul, who am the true Jew. Because I was as zealous for the Jewish religion as any one of you, but I met the Messiah. Now, the, if the Jews are doing anything, they are waiting for the Messiah. They are waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And Paul says, I've met him. I saw him. He spoke to me. If you were a real Jew, you too would come to believe in Jesus the Nazarene. Do you see Paul's aim? He has, he has a rhetorical strategy there, doesn't he? Now, one more thing about Paul's speech, and that is notice the emphasis, the repeated emphasis on how there are witnesses to what Paul is saying. You don't simply have to take my word for it. Yeah, Paul, you saw a great light. I mean, come on, you know. Do you really expect us to believe that, Paul? Paul says there are witnesses. Look, look with me in verse 5. Paul talks about, in verse 4, about how he's persecuting the Christians who he calls this way. And in verse 5, he says, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. Paul says, listen, folks, you can go to the Jerusalem council. You can go to the Sanhedrin. They wrote the letters that I took on my way to Damascus. Those letters are probably still in existence. You don't have to take my word for it. But you can go to them and ask them, did you really do that? And they will corroborate what I'm telling you today. This is not, don't just take my word for it. Paul goes on in verse 9. In verse 9, this light, right? Again, right? we tend to be really suspicious of people who say, you know, God spoke to me and told me this or that, right? But Paul says that on the way to Damascus, these men who were with me saw the light. Now, they didn't understand what the voice was saying to me. They heard the voice, but they didn't understand what it was saying. So again, Paul said, listen, these were real men. It was, it was a large party of us that were going to Damascus, and I'm not the only one who saw this light. These guys saw it too. You can ask them. They heard a voice. They didn't understand what the voice was saying, but they heard it. Again, you notice Paul's emphasis on corroborating witnesses to his testimony. Then in verse 12, then in verse 12, a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, but then notice what Paul throws in there, and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. This Ananias was also a Jew. And in fact, more than likely, Ananias is still living. You can speak to him. Furthermore, Ananias is not some wild, hysterical person who likes to come up with crazy stories. He's well spoken of. He's a solid guy. All the Jews speak well of him. They know him. He's a dependable witness. And you can speak to him. This is the evidence that Paul gives to the audience before him in his speech. Alas, my friends, the fourth point, unbelief. Because the moment the Jews, the moment he says that God told him, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. We notice that the speech is over. The Jewish people can no longer tolerate such talk. Now, children, on your notes, you see that question there. It says, why did the Jews hate Paul so much? 
Do you see that there? Why did the Jews hate Paul so much? And you'll notice that in verse 21, you have the trigger, don't you? You have the, the, the moment that you might say the crowd went into a frenzy. God said to Paul, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The Jewish people could not stand the thought that God would have any mercy for Gentile people. The Jews at this time were the true racist, the true people who did not regard any other ethnicity as worth a grain of salt. And that's the thing that sends them over the top. No, it wasn't just that saying, right? It was everything that Paul stood for, his rejection of the law, his belief that Jesus the Messiah had come, right? But still, it's that statement there that sends them off. And now you have unbelief. Now, my friends, I just want to consider with you a minute is this, was there enough evidence? Did Paul, we all, all of us suspend belief, don't we? I mean, that's just a wise thing to do. We all suspend belief until we see sufficient evidence that would lead us to give our assent to any proposition, to any idea. And I think we can just ask ourselves this morning, did the Jewish people there have a point? Right? Was, was, the, was the evidence just too thin? It wasn't quite enough to bring them to believe. Well, I, I don't have to say much about this, do I? Because Paul himself said it in his speech. You can go to the Sanhedrin and you can ask them. You can go to those men who traveled with me to Damascus. You can go to Ananias. Now, I, have to, I, have, I think we can all agree, right, that that is sufficient corroboration of Paul's testimony, that there is sufficient testimony there, sufficient cross-witnesses could be examined. Paul, or all these people, you could ask them, did this really happen? Paul is saying this, would you agree? And so God, in his mercy, provided sufficient evidence to these Jewish people to bring them to the point where they should believe the gospel. Now, my friends, as we reflect upon this by way of application, I discovered this in our own Canons of Dort. Actually, wasn't looking for this, but in my preparation, I looked up something in the Canons of Dort, and I looked at Article 8, 9, and 10. And I thought to myself, that's really a picture of what happened here in Jerusalem. So one of the confessions of our church is, is called the canons or the, the truths of Dortrecht because these things were all written out in the, in the city of Dort in the Netherlands. In head 3-4, in chapter 3-4 of the canons of Dort, we have article 8, and I, I put that for you there on the outline. And it says this, Nevertheless, all who are called through the gospel are called seriously. For seriously and most genuinely, God makes known in his word what is pleasing to him, that those who are called should come to him. Seriously, he also promises rest for their souls and eternal life to all who come to him and believe. And so, my friends, I see in the picture of Jerusalem, I see Paul standing on the steps of of uh, the, the Roman uh, fortress there, being ready to be brought into prison, we see this picture of the general or the universal call of the gospel. Sometimes called the, the free offer of the gospel. Jesus had stood before the city of Jerusalem and had said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you? And now Paul, who is an ambassador for Jesus Christ, 
stands before the same group of people. Different people, but same basic group. And he does the same thing. He says, men, brothers, listen to me. This is a profound truth, my friends. Because don't forget that those people had just beaten Paul. They had just beaten him up pretty seriously. But my friends, you see in Paul's heart something of God's heart. And the canons express it by the repeated use of that word seriously. Maybe if you have a pen in hand, you can circle every time the word seriously occurs in Article 8. Because that's what you see standing here. God sends out a call, an invitation to believe the gospel, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a serious call. And God genuinely expresses his love and his concern for people who are determined to destroy themselves. Now there's something of a mystery here, isn't there? How can God seriously desire and love these people when he has decreed to damn them? Right? There's two truths there that are difficult to bring together. I certainly don't have the ability to do that. But all the same, we see it so clearly in the scriptures. And my friends, it shows us, it gives us a window this morning into the heart of God towards his people on earth. And in this case, not his people by salvation, but his people that he has set aside ethnically as his people in the Old Testament. People who are determined and resolved in their unbelief. And yet the heart of God, through his servant Paul, goes out to them. And he makes them this genuine and serious call and invitation. My friends, this shows us the love of God, even for sinners, even for unbelievers. Children, on the bottom of your notes, it says, what did this sermon teach you about God? I think you see something of that here. I think you see something of that. The sermon teaches us about the heart of God towards sinners. You also see in your notes there a picture of a man preaching. <clears throat> Keep your eye on that picture. We'll return to that. Now, in the second application, my friends, the general call of the gospel is met with unbelief. And this we are taught in Article 9, where we read, and please read with me if you can, on the outline, Article 9. The fact that many who are called through the ministry of the gospel do not come and are not brought to conversion must not be blamed on the gospel, nor on Christ, who is offered through the gospel, nor on God, who calls them through the gospel and even bestows various gifts on them, but on the people themselves who are called. Some in self-assurance do not even entertain the word of life. Others do entertain it, but do not take it to heart. And for that reason, after the fleeting joy of a temporary faith, they relapse. Others choke the seed of the word with the thorns of life's cares and with the pleasures of the world and bring forth no fruits. This our Savior teaches in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. Now, my friends, <clears throat> we want to be very clear that when Paul stands before them and says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense. Now, of course, he never actually gets to the, to the that they cut him off before he can even get to the general call of the gospel. But you certainly see his heart there, right? His willingness to explain these things to them. It is met with this response. Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. 
And now the canons of Dort look at that reality. They look at that unbelief. And to whom do they ascribe it? Well, they look at that reality from the human perspective. Now, that's critical that we understand that this morning. From the human perspective, their unbelief is attributable to themselves. Now, we could look at it from another perspective, but the canons want us to look at it this morning from the human perspective. And that's why it says, the fact that many who are called persist in their unbelief must not be blamed on the gospel, nor on Christ, nor on God, but on the people themselves who are called. The blame lies upon them. And to any person in our audience today, in the church this morning, and to any person anywhere who rejects the gospel, we say to them, that's your fault. When you stand before God, the basis, the standard by which you will be judged will be this general call that was given to you. Because it was, it was made seriously to you. And God declared to you what was most pleasing to him, that you would repent of your sins and turn to God in faith. Repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we had that last week. And on the basis of that general call, my friends, those people will be turned into outer darkness. I wish you could see that this morning, my friends. I wish you could see the world as, as our confession gives it to us this morning. We could see the world as those who are saved and those who are perishing. There are God's people and there are those who reject the gospel. Now to both of these groups, God makes a sincere call and calls them out of their unbelief. But as those who have trusted in Christ, as I trust we are this morning, I ask you this morning, my friends, does that break your heart to see such a large proportion of people who dismiss the gospel, who turn away from it? This morning, I want to especially set before you the Jewish people, because that's what we see in the passage given us here this morning. How heartbreaking it must be, my friends, when we see these people who have received so many privileges and favors from God, turning their back on him. No use for the gospel. No use for the Lord Jesus Christ. And loving their own destruction. That's why Paul says so many times in the previous chapters, I exhorted you with tears. Why? Because it broke his heart. It broke his heart his heart burned with so much love for his countrymen. And as he watched them persisting on a way that would lead them to destruction, he wept. So strong was his affection for, his, for, for the Jewish people that he said, I could wish myself to be damned. That's what he says in Romans 9, verse 3. Now, of course, that's, that's Paul speaking something that's not literally true case, right? It's the... What you're meant to see there, my friends, is the depth of his devotion and his love for his people. I could wish myself to be lost if they only could be saved. And that heart, my friends, reflects God's heart for, his pe for, for lost people. Well, my friends, we come to the last application. Because if there's anything that's clearly taught us in this chapter, is that more is required for the salvation of the Jewish people and of all people 
than merely a general call of the gospel. That the preacher can stand. And children, you see that preacher there, right? That preacher can only bring this general call of the gospel. I can only speak. I can only proclaim Christ to you. I can only bring it to your ears. But something else is necessary. Something else is necessary. And I think I can say, my friends, that on this, on, a, on, a, on the road to Damascus, we see a picture of this effectual call of the gospel. Where God comes in his power, and Jesus Christ comes in his power, and he knocks Paul off the horse, and a blaze of glorious light comes down upon Paul. Nothing else could have brought Paul to that place. You could preach to Paul all day long. You could argue. You could explain. You could persuade. You could call and you could call and you could call. But nothing else will break the hard heart of Paul but an effectual call. And children, you notice one of your questions there is what does the word effectual mean? Effectual means power. Effectual means it always has an effect. And now, my friends, this is the glory of the gospel. That God comes to his own people, whom he's chosen from a never-begun eternity, and he effectually changes their hearts. And oh, how they hear the call differently then. Now the call comes to open ears. You see Paul lying there on the ground outside the city of Damascus? And he says, he, says, he cried out to Jesus, Lord, what would you have me to do? What a change, my friends, came in the life of that man. Because of God's effectual and powerful call. His heart was changed. And that's what we read in Article 10. Would you read this with me as well? The fact that others who are called through the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to man, as though one distinguishes himself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith and conversion. No, it must be credited to God. Just as from eternity he chose his own in Christ, so within time he effectively calls them, grants them faith and repentance, and having rescued them from the dominion of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son, in order that they might declare the wonderful deeds of him, who called them out of darkness into this marvelous light, and may boast not in themselves, but in the Lord, as apostolic words frequently testify in Scripture. My friends, this is, this is, this is cause to worship God, isn't it? Because there's not a person here this morning who would ever be saved if they did not have this effectual call of God in their life. Do you believe that this morning? It's so easy to read about these Jewish people and think, my, those people were stubborn. How willful they were. It's so easy to look at somebody like the Apostle Paul and to think, what was his problem? Why was he so resistant to the gospel? But my friends, do you believe that the same resistance was in your heart this morning? You may not have had an experience like the Apostle Paul had. You may not be able to tell some great testimony of all the things that God did in your life. Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. That's really not so important. But the truth that we have to confess, my friends, is that every Christian here today would be lost forever if God had not come and in his own time changed your heart, broke your will, and drawn you to himself. Grasp that fact this morning, my friends. Grasp that fact. Because you know where that will lead you? That will lead you to fall at the feet of God 
It will lead you to fall at the feet of Christ and say, Lord, all my salvation is because you. You made the difference, Lord, in my life. It's a humbling thing, but it's a happy thing. I know there are many families here, parents whose hearts break because they see children who are walking away from the gospel, who dismissed the claims of truth. In this third application, my friends, we have grounds never to lose hope, never to stop praying for such children or any member of our family. Because the effectual call of the gospel means that the most stubborn heart can be broken. The most obstinate person against the gospel is nothing in the hands of God. God can break the heart of that person, and God can bring them to faith in Christ. So, my friends, I urge you, never stop praying. Never lose hope for even the most obstinate person who hates the gospel. They can be saved. They can be made trophies of God's eternal grace and salvation. All this has given us in this glorious truth of the ineffectual call of the gospel. May God give us, my friends, to glory to make our boast in this call. Because then God's name will increase and ours will decrease. And that's a happy day. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that as we consider this truth this evening, or this morning, that we really would fall on our faces before you and say, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory and the honor forever and forever. It is your eternal good pleasure, O Lord, that made the difference in our life. Not our choice, not our will. Lord, I pray that you would press these things upon us and that we would rejoice in these truths. Lord, if there are any here who do not know these things by their own experience and by their own faith, I pray, O God, that this morning, this day, they would not rest, that they would have no rest or peace until they come to put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Lord, I pray that you would remember the Jewish people. We earnestly beseech you, O God, that you would move amongst them to bring them to faith in the Savior, faith in their Messiah, and that we might rejoice to see them gathered in, in vast numbers, bowing before the Savior, coming under the blood of the glorious sin offering. Which was, which was given for them, that they also might put their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, bless the Sunday school and catechism instruction. We pray that this also, Lord, would be for the salvation and the blessing of our children. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now in the red hymnal to number 468. 468. Jerusalem the golden, with milk and honey blessed, beneath your contemplation sink heart and voice oppressed. Let's sing this song of Jerusalem, 468, and we'll sing all four verses.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.